And I believe, I'm pretty, pretty sure that this is the first ever reported machine learning tool in emergency medicine that has been implemented in, in change practice. Hi, I'm Marianne Bohr from HIMSS. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jeremiah Hinson, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Associate Director of Research for the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, we'll be talking about the use of AI to support better clinical decision-making in emergency medicine. And before we start, I want to say thank you to Beckman Coulter for sponsoring this podcast. Dr. Hinson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Dr. Hinson, could you share a little bit with us about your background in informatics and emergency medicine? Sure. So um, as you said, uh, I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at Hopkins, and I am an uh, emergency physician uh, and also a clinical researcher. Uh, So I practice uh, clinically at both Johns Hopkins Hospital and at our uh, sister hospital, Johns Hopkins Bayview uh, Medical Center. And my background and training is actually not in informatics. It's uh, in molecular research. I did a PhD in uh, pathology and laboratory medicine uh, before going to medical school uh, and had planned to do research in these areas. And I sort of backed into informatics based on problem identification. Uh, And then uh, the tools that we really needed to solve the problems I was interested in uh, were in informatics. So I've done some training uh, with uh, uh, Amy, actually. I've done the 10 by 10 course and, and then just done a lot of work uh, in informatics over the past 10, 11 years. Uh, so, but my background was not in this and wasn't really my plan to be uh, working in informatics and data science, but uh, this is how things go. <laughs> I see. So what were some of the big issues that you and your team were facing in the emergency department at Johns Hopkins? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, emergency medicine and emergency departments in general are really a gateway to care in the United States. So uh, for a number of reasons, people in the United States don't have easy access to care, uh, whether that's uh, seeing their primary care doctor, uh, urgent care, getting into a hospital. And so the emergency department really serves as a safety net for the American healthcare system. It's also the main portal to inpatient care. Uh, So at the moment, over 70% of hospitalizations in the United States all originate in the emergency department. Uh, so it's a really critical resource resource for folks. Uh, but emergency departments across the country are overwhelmed as a result of this. And so in 2007, the Institute of Medicine published uh, a report indicating that the emergency care system in the United States was at the breaking point. Since 2007, the number of visits have gone up considerably, uh, and the number of EDs available to care for patients in the United States has gone down. Uh, So uh, the most recent report showed that we're taking care of over 140 million visits each year. Uh, That's about a visit uh, for every two people in the United States per year uh, that we're we're taking care of. And because we have so, so many folks and so few resources, there's a lot of crowding. So just a ton of waiting uh, for care in the emergency department. Um, And this is where, you know, the the tools that we've been to develop being really aimed to work. Uh, So when you have so many people waiting for care, so many people trying to get the same resource, you have to do something to allocate those resources to the folks who need it most. Uh, And so we use triage, uh, emergency department triage. Triage is a concept that was first developed on the battlefields, so deciding which soldiers who were wounded needed care most and, and quickest. But in the emergency department, we use this on a daily basis to decide who's going to get the next bed, who's going to see the only available uh, doctor, 
uh, and, and how we're really going to distribute those resources best. I backed into the problem uh, by working internationally and seeing that there were major challenges to emergency department triage abroad. Wanted to come back and kind of give our local expertise within the United States to, to folks internationally. And I found that the problems that people were struggling with internationally were the same here at home. Uh, really poor differentiation of patients uh, at the outset of care using uh triage scales that were developed over 20 years ago uh, and didn't really risk stratify patients adequately, weren't really validated to outcomes, clinical outcomes of patients. Started trying to figure out how we could address that problem. Uh, and I found that uh, a an engineer colleague, his name is Scott Levin, another uh, professor at Hopkins, uh, was already developing a tool to try to address this problem as well. And so that's kind of how I backed into it was from the clinical problem of ED crowding uh, limited resources and a need to be able to really reliably risk stratify patients so that we could get care, limited care, uh, to the patients who needed it most, the fastest. Okay, well, you've kind of anticipated my next question. Um, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us about what led to the inception of this project and the AHRQ grant that funded it? Yeah, what, what, what's interesting um I, I sort of was leading to your next question, but in a way not, because I was not involved in, in the initial AHRQ grant. So what was interesting is that I was truthfully in Colombia and in the United Arab Emirates and other places working in um, global emergency care and encountering these issues. And then at Hopkins in, in Baltimore, my colleague was working on the same issues within the United States and, and was writing a grant to kind of address these problems. Uh, so the challenges of ED overcrowding, limited resources, uh, and the, the need for care uh, without adequate resources is not only a problem in the United States, it's, it's kind of global. But in Baltimore, you know, we have population that we take care of that's from a wide range of socioeconomic backgrounds uh, and a wide range of access to care. And the population is actually you know, very sick as well. The patients that we take care of uh, can have really complex medical problems, can present with really uh, severe illness. Uh, and sometimes it can be difficult to determine which patients need care the most uh, and should get that next limited resource. So my colleague, Scott Levin, uh, he was working on this problem and, and, and he came uh, to the problem from a, a different perspective, an engineer's perspective, uh, and was starting to think, how could we use all of the data that we're gathering routinely to inform this process? Uh, because up to 2000, I guess, 17 in our emergency department, like in most emergency departments across the country, uh, we were using an algorithm largely uh, informed by experience and intuition. So you look at a patient, you say, okay, there's a patient in front of me. Is this patient very sick? Yes or no. Is this a patient who's who's dying and needs to be taken care of immediately? Uh, is this a patient who can't wait? These are all, as you can see, pretty subjective questions. Uh, and then it was a, a, a question of, is this a person uh, who's going to use one resource, two resource, three, three resources in the emergency department? And then a level of one to five would be assigned to that patient based on what we thought was going to happen to them. And when I say we, it's, it's really experienced triage nurses who are making this decision, a highly subjective decision and a difficult decision that has to be made under a lot of time pressure. That, that AHRQ grant, uh, which was an R21, an early demonstration award, uh, was written by Scott with the aim of informing that decision with data and using some uh, techniques that were new at the time, uh, things like artificial intelligence, machine learning. Uh, people weren't really talking about that, and he was thinking about it early on, uh, as early as 2015, actually, about how we could use 
uh, those data to inform uh, our decisions and to improve flow and outcomes in the emergency department. Fantastic. Now, were there any challenges designing this algorithm? Uh, it's a great question. I don't think there were challenges per se, but there were certain things we had to really consider. Okay, so the, the process of triage happens very, very quickly. So a person comes to the emergency department, uh, they present, I'll give you an example, I mean, maybe I'm coming in with chest pain today. I would register very quickly, or maybe I come in with an ambulance and I get registered while I'm rolling down the hallway. Uh, and then a nurse has literally minutes, maybe three minutes to see a patient, evaluate them, and assign a triage score. If we developed a tool that asked a nurse to get additional information or to create new workflows, I mean, the tool just couldn't be used. We really knew that we couldn't ask for anything additional. We couldn't create any additional work. We couldn't ask for additional clicks within the electronic health record. It had to be something that could integrate within care and make things uh, easier, not harder. The challenges, I guess, are that we had to work within those confines. Okay, so the when we think about a, developing a, a prediction algorithm, you always want to take a predictor variables that have to be present before the time of prediction, and then you have to uh, find an outcome that's clinically meaningful. So. We, we decided to use from the outset the same predictor variables that nurses were already gathering. So simple things. How old is this patient? How did they get here? What is their chief complaint? And what are their vital signs? And, and those are the things that nurses are already capturing uh, and, and making a triage decision with. And they're already entering them to, into the electronic health record. And then we wanted to predict things that were clinically meaningful. So in today's emergency departments, like predicting how many resources are going to be used is not terribly useful because... Uh, most patients are using a lot of resources, right? But things that are more important is, is this patient someone who's going to decompensate uh, if I don't provide care right away? Uh, is this a person who um, is really at risk for an adverse clinical event if we don't get to them quickly? And so, so we had to think about what the outcomes are that represent that. And so we decided on a few. So we chose to predict which patients would go on uh, to require admission to the hospital as a indicator of how sick they were, which patients would need to be whisked away to an operating room or a procedure suite for an emergency procedure, uh, and then which patients would go to an ICU or die. Uh, and so based on the risk of those three outcomes, uh, we were able to, to take the probabilities that were predicted by machine learning algorithm uh, and then translate those to recommended triage acuity levels. And so uh, our algorithm, it's called Triage Go. It, takes the exact same information that has been collected for two decades in the time that it requires a nurse to advance to the next screen. Those predictors are sent to a cloud. They're processed. Probabilities of those three outcomes I talked about are generated and they're translated to recommended triage level. And, and then every time we go to a new hospital, we take that algorithm that we developed at initially using uh, in nationally represented data, then later uh, honed to our, our initial hospitals within Johns Hopkins. And then we retrain the algorithms such that they are optimized uh, to operate at each institution where, where they're deployed, which is really important uh, because that allows us uh, to know that the predictions we're generating at hospital X uh, are specific for hospital X because a lot of the behaviors, uh, clinician behaviors and, and the way they treat people or resources that they have will actually influence the way patients are cared for than each hospital. So that was very important as well. Of course, I can see that every population is different after all. Yep, absolutely. That kind of leads to my next question. Were there any challenges implementing this algorithm? Yeah, I think um, if we implemented the algorithm today, 
like 2023, I think it would be a different story. Everyone has heard a lot about artificial intelligence. A lot of people are very excited about it. Chat GPT is out there. You know, you, you really can't turn on the television without hearing someone talk about artificial intelligence. And at this point, most people know what machine learning is. When we initially deployed the tool in 2017, it was, a, I mean, that was only uh, six years ago or something, right? And it was a different world. The landscape was very different. And so people were much more, not just suspicious, but really didn't uh, understand. A lot of people didn't understand what we were doing and what we were trying to do. And there was a lot of anxiety that we were trying to take over people's jobs with a computer and a machine. Um, and so I think when you're in implementing any tool that uses artificial intelligence, at least for the foreseeable future, I don't think we're going to ever be in a situation where machines are going to replace clinical judgment. They're really just going to support clinical judgment. So we had to do a, a, a lot of work initially uh, to make sure people understood that, that we were coming in with an algorithm. It was going to provide decision support, uh, but it wasn't going to replace the decision maker. That was probably the biggest thing. It, once people understood that, kind of a, a light bulb went off and, and they saw it not as a threat, but as a, a help, uh, it just totally changed the dynamic. And so some of, a lot of my great friends are nurses within our institution and had come to me very suspicious about this tool that we were putting in. But within one week, everyone like loved the tool and, 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 and their perceptions had completely changed. So that's a, a big part of it is making sure people understand that these tools are really there to support decision-making and not to replace. And within our system still, you know, the uh, Triage Go will give a recommended uh, acuity. It will tell the nurse in real time why it's giving that acuity based on uh, the predictors that are driving uh, the recommendation. Uh, and then the nurse chooses to follow it or not, because there are times when the, the machine is wrong, right? Uh, and what we find is that the, the optimal outcome is when the human being works with the machine to make the ultimate decision. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, nothing can really replace a triage nurse, I don't think. Nope. Highly skilled. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what are some of the main benefits that you've observed in the ED at, at, the, at Johns Hopkins now that you've implemented this triage go tool? Yeah, so um, there's some obvious benefits that we've seen. So the first is that triage acuity assignment is much more objective and reliable. One anecdote that I'll, I'll share with you is this. Uh, when I was observing challenges internationally uh, with triage, one of the things that I always saw were arguments between physicians and nurses about the acuity that was assigned. Why was this person assigned a level two? Why was this person assigned a level three? Why was this person a level four uh, and out in the waiting room? Those kinds of things. Uh, and then when I came back and had noticed noticed those internationally, I started to notice them here as well. Like we were having the same sort of discussions. And I would often have a level two patient, uh, which means a, a patient who needs to be seen right away. And I wouldn't be able to figure out why they were a level two. And so we have a conversation about that. After we implemented the tool in our setting, uh, the triage go uh, machine learning triage tool. Clinician teams actually asked that we implement a program where level two patients are announced over the loudspeaker so that the teams can descend on them and take care of them right away. The, the driver of this was that our patients who were assigned to level two were sick, reliably sick. Like we could rely on the triage levels. They were driven by vital sign abnormalities, driven by medical history elements that have been uh, scraped from the record. And so we really knew that these patients were going to go on to have uh, uh, adverse outcomes if we didn't get in there in time. So that's one thing is that in the clinical environment, you can really rely on that triage value uh, and it drives your practice pattern. Uh, the other thing is because we are able to better differentiate patients, 
uh, we can take care of them more efficiently. So under the uh, old paradigm, uh, emergency severity index is the, the tool that we were using previously and that most people uh, in the country are still using, uh, which is a great tool, uh, just designed in a different time when we were using less resources. Because it's subjective and because it uh, relies on resource utilization to drive triage levels, the vast majority of patients all go into one triage level, triage level three. And so they they sit in the waiting room and, and wait for care for a very long time. Our tool, we're able to better differentiate people uh, by making sure the patients that are assigned level one and two are actually very sick. And then we're able to safely divert patients away from level three and into a level four and five. And that allows them to be taken care of in a uh, fast track area. When we did those things, uh, it allowed us to take care of our sick patients much more efficiently. So our, our level two patients, patients who are going to an ICU uh, or to a procedure suite, like an operating room or an endoscopy suite for an emergency procedure or surgery, they actually left the hospital, left the emergency department for that other site uh, an hour earlier on average, which is in emergency medicine, like a, a really uh, impressive outcome. And the reason is because we're, we're kind of cutting through some of the noise and getting to the signal. So we're finding the sick patients faster, and we're doing that by safely diverting patients into other care pathways. Yeah, that that's a huge change. I can say that. So how do you think this tool and others will be looked on and how will they be adopted by the industry at large? I think we're in the very early days of artificial intelligence in medicine. This particular uh, tool, we published a study on it uh, in Annals of Emergency Medicine. And I believe, I'm pretty, pretty sure that this is the first ever reported machine learning tool in emergency medicine that has been implemented in, in change practice. I think people are very excited about it. I think people will be excited about the, the history of it. This particular tool is so simple and what it's trying to accomplish, it's trying to help us with that very first decision that drives care uh, later on. I think we're going to be also you know, judged by some things that are super important uh, for us to address and that we're actively addressing, which is making sure that when we roll a tool out like this into the clinical environment, it improves care for everybody. We have a long history as a medical community of uh, doing things that improve care for some folks, but not for everyone in a systematic way, like biases. And so when we have tools like uh, Triage Go or any sort of artificial intelligence informed decision support, it's really important that we look at biases that exist inside our current data sets uh, and that we ensure that we're not propagating bias and that, if, that we interrogate for bias and actually try to eliminate it. And so those are things that we're doing with our tool. Some uh, internal data that you know hasn't, hasn't come out yet, it, it shows that our, our tool performs as well or better for historically marginalized communities uh, than it does for white patients, for example. So, so minority populations have better, better predictions uh, with our tool. Uh, and then we've also looked at uh, biases that exist in triage assignment. There's been a lot of uh, data showing triage bias begins at triage at the first decision. And so uh, minority populations are often assigned lower triage scales than their white counterparts. And these are the kinds of things that we can address uh, with triage go and, and start working on eliminating these types of biases. So I think that's what's going to be. And I think people are going to view this as like a really exciting tool, one of the first tools to really get out there. I think the future is bright for this field. Um, but I think that making sure that we're approaching things in a responsible way is also super important. Could you share some closing remarks and maybe some hopes and dreams for the clinical decision support technologies that are on the horizon? Sure. I, I have a lot of dreams. You know, I, I, I think like, as I was saying, I think this, this, the future is bright for this field uh, if we approach it in the right way. 
Triage is just the first of many decisions that occur in the emergency department and throughout a hospitalization and healthcare in general. The fact that in, I guess, six years or so since we started working on this, we've just like really revolutionized the way we approach that first decision is really exciting. Uh, but then, you know, we have all of the other decisions that we make afterward, right? So how do we diagnose this patient, find out what's wrong with them? Once we've come up with a diagnosis, like how do we decide what treatment this patient is going to get? What's the optimal level of care of this patient if they stay inside the hospital? Can they go home safely, right? And within each of, each of those decisions is a ton of smaller decisions. I think that the future will combine a lot of technologies, right? So the data that we're collecting routinely, like vital signs, age, prior events that a patient has had that may not seem immediately connected to the current visit, but then also combining new things like novel diagnostics that are, that are coming out um, uh, and can be incorporated into care to help us make better, more informed decisions at every point in that care continuum. Uh, and doing it in a way that's non-obtrusive, that's kind of what I see. Uh, that this will be kind of a backbone on, on which we sit and provide care with a lot of different clinical decision support modules, improve things uh, and make things uh, more equitable uh, across the population as well. Well, Dr. Henson, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for sharing your insights with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been nice to talk to you. And of course, special thanks to Beckman Coulter for sponsoring this podcast. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Mm-hmm.